0: Hello Coders, welcome to episode 191 of the How to Go Well podcast. This episode is recorded on the 30th of January 2023, the last Monday of the January of 2023. So this is motoring on through the year, which is crazy. Today we're going to be talking uh, about, well, there's three things that I want to talk about. First of all, we're going to talk about the NHS, then we're going to talk about JD Sports, and then I have like a... An article that I want to give you around how to do git commits and the patterns that you can use. I found it really really useful so I think uh, you might too. Before we get into any of that of course let's talk about the changelog. So I still haven't upgraded or updated the howtocodewell.net site with the latest version because the pipeline is still not a hundred percent. Pipeline is this thing that um, does the CI, and then eventually, doesn't really do the CD, but it gets the Docker images in a state that is ready for me to deploy. I had an issue. I've mentioned this before. I had an issue where the pipeline, the GitLab pipeline, was running from my laptop, which is not a good idea because I upgraded my laptop, and then the pipeline just decided to die because there were versions of Python that were changed and all of that stuff. I'm not going to get into the details, but just don't run pipelines locally that you rely on as like mission critical stuff because your development laptop changes quite frequently i then decided to put this in a virtual machine so i used i used parallels on the laptop put it in parallels that worked quite well i wasn't overly happy though so i decided to go to the next version and push it to a virtual machine out in the cloud. So I use Linode hosting and I was, I created myself a Terraform stroke Ansible tear up, tear down GitLab instance, which so far is working pretty well. I haven't finished all the th- all of the steps of GitLab. So that's what I'm, I'm yet to, to do and to complete. And then I'll be able to do the deployment. So it's taking me a, a bit of time. I have been busy with other things. So I am uh now getting into my Eldar in Warhammer and I actually had uh, a couple of matches over the weekend so which I lost <laughs> quite badly at but anyway these things are taking time because of other things that I'm doing as well. Also in March I have a uh, tartan warrior which is like an obstacle course race in the um up in Scotland. So I'm going to be exercising and going to the gym and stuff. So howtocowell.net probably is going to take a little bit of a backseat for, you know, a little bit before between now and, and March, I think, uh, which is a shame, but it's just the way it goes. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get too stressy over it. So let's talk about let's talk about the NHS. So the National Health Service, something I haven't really mentioned on this Uh, show they had a (laughs) the register saying they had a meltdown in uh where are we it was declared july the 19th 2022 and it wasn't lifted until september uh Twenty second, So July 19th to September the 22nd. So a little bit over two months. And it happened between two data centers, between Guy's and St. Thomas NHS Foundation Trust. I'm going to click on a button now, and it's going to show you the article that I'm actually reading. It's something that I haven't done on this show before, but pachow. There we go. So what happened was during the heat wave, both of these data centers um, just basically fell over. And they were backing each other up, which isn't a good, which wasn't good. The temperatures rose uh, up to, it was reported, 50 C, between 40 and 50 C. So for you in you guys in the Am- Americas, uh, that's about 104 uh, Fahrenheit, I think that is, for 40 C. I might be wrong there. Anyway, so Guy's and St. Thomas have, between them, 371 Uh, legacy IT systems. According to this uh, register article, I'll put the links of this in the show notes below. And when these data centers fell over, the things that were affected by this were, were things such as patient records, clinical services, and obviously the underlying infrastructure. The Guy's data center was constructed in 2007, while St. Thomas was built in 2012. And the infrastructure was updated between 2015 and 2016. So they're going to be on legacy uh, hardware, which will also have legacy software in there. And this cost the NHS, um, or at least these two two places, it cost 1.4 million out of out-of-plan spending to resolve. I'll give you a quote here. The failure of both data centers at the same time left some of the backup servers in a conflicted state, which could not be resolved by the internal IT department or Atos, I think that's the name of the company that were uh, looking after the internal IT stuff. Um, Zeroto was contacted to troubleshoot and identify a workaround for the affected server groups. The solution was a. Was a time-consuming manual process of extracting and copying files. The outage also revealed problems with the level of technical knowledge required for disaster response and recovery. The report noted that Atos staff required technical direction by DT and I. I think that's an a company who they outsourced a couple of this uh, support. You know support for uh, DT and I staff uh, when managing system shut down in Guy's data center. The report identified one event of moderate harm caused to a patient and evidence of more cases may come to light. So this being the NHS, being the National Health Service is very, very serious because this is patient records, right? Patient records were uh, just unavailable. And so doctors and nurses were having to call one place and the other place you know for for records and it just got a bit of a mess right it's it's really horrible to 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 see this it's it's because this is something that affects us you know human beings and a lot of these things are based on human error this sh- these systems should have been these are in my opinion critical systems and they needed to be uh, kept up to date I work a lot on legacy code, certainly not in the NHS space, but I work as a web developer uh, a lot on legacy systems. So I know the importance from just perhaps an e-commerce point of view, why things need to be updated on an iterative process. It's not a case of, you know, we update our systems and then we leave them for five years and then update them again. It's a case of these systems are continually being upgraded. This is something that I cannot just wrap my head around when I look at these other industries that use IT, use code, use hardware, and they don't upgrade them. And there isn't any kind of continual, constant upgrade path, right? And upgrade is something that should always be a consideration. It shouldn't be this thing that just you update it once, leave it for five years, and and then update it again. There needs to be a constant iterative upgrade program in place for all of these systems because not only are we putting patient records and therefore the patient's well-being at jeopardy we're also putting like we're also allowing security and vulnerabilities to to come into play which is just not good it's just not good and we're going to be we're causing ourselves problems in the long run by not keeping things updated constantly. The ongoing outage meant that doctors could not see patients' medical notes remotely and had to write down the results of the consultations by hand. Access to results of diagnostic tests, including CT and MRI scans, was also down leaving clinicians having to phone for results. The outage came after the trust board was warned months ago of the risk of running legacy systems, a board of directors, audit and risk committee reports. So in the show notes, there'll be a link to the report. It's a PDF document. Well, what I'll do actually is I'll link to because I don't really like linking to PDF documents directly. What I'll do is I'll link to the articles that I'm reading here and then they'll have a link to the PDF documents. So this was a report that was done in last November that said that the trust ran IT systems that are out of support, including IT infrastructure that had reached end of its life. The trust is in the middle of moving to a new electronic health record software, which is expected to go live April this year, 2023. Um, it is set to be based on software f- from US supplier Epic under a 175 million or 210 billion million dollar contract so they are they are looking to upgrade this or they are in you know in the motions of upgrading this so you know hopefully these these things won't happen again but it's just i wanted to bring this up because again it's a legacy system and i i do find it interesting looking at other industries where they are working with code they are working with hardware and they're working with um, keeping things up to date, or trying to catch themselves up to you know catch themselves up to keep things up to date. If you look at it from a web developer's point of view, and you think, well, how many times do I upgrade every year, right? How how many times do I upgrade my frameworks, my libraries? You know, just ask a JavaScript developer how many times they've ran an npm update, right? And then you look at these stories from that sort of lens. And you're like, how are these systems not updated? <laughs> but of course, this has a huge amount of money attached to it, right? Not saying that ours don't have a huge amount of money attached to it, but maybe that's a consideration that they... that they Maybe they've done risk assessments. I don't know. I don't know. I'm clutching at straws here as to why they could let these things... Personally, I think it's irresponsible. I think it's irresponsible by these companies uh, and these services and organisations That we rely on and we pay our taxes for um, that aren't being updated and don't have a program uh, of updates in place. But anyway, let's get off of this story. So another one, which is a little bit. uh, (laughs) This is a bit of a downer today, I suppose. Another one that is a bit of a downer is that JD Sports uh, says that 10 million customers were hit by a cyber attack. I'm going to just click on this link. Boom. So this is from the BBC. It says that the company uh, said that information may have been uh, accessed by hackers includes names, addresses, email accounts, phone numbers, order details, and the final four digits of bank cards. So this JD Sports is uh, a company that sells sports brands. I, I use I use them, uh, I've bought from there quite a lot, um, running gear and gym, gym stuff, I've, I've you know, but it's it's a shop that I would go in to and then because, you know, I like to try things on. Right. Um I, I don't buy from JD Sports Online, but I do know a lot, a lot of people do. And, you know, obviously 10 million customers here were hit by this cyber attack. Uh, the data related to online orders between November 2018 and October 2020. I can't even remember what, what I bought back then. JD Sports uh, has said that they are contacting affected customers. So one thing I would point out here is the fact that when you get asked for receipts, you know, when you get asked how you, would you like your receipt, and usually they would say, not just JD Sports, but, you know, all sorts of companies, when you buy a product in person, they'll often ask you, would you like your receipt as, a, as an email and out of convenience, you normally say, yes, I would, so you give them your email address. There's also a bit, of, bit in the back of your head probably that's going, well, actually this is saving the world because it's one less piece of paper that I'm carrying around and I'll probably eventually throw away anyway, right? So it's, it's one less thing. An email has a smaller carbon footprint than this piece of paper. But the problem there is that once you've given your email address away, and I know that this isn't how the 10 million customers got hit by the cyber attack here, but I just want to make this point. Once you give your email to this company, to these companies, they will then send you emails and try and entice you to create accounts that, and, and they might do this through online promotions. So, you know, your first your first uh, order of over 60, 60 pounds gets free delivery, that kind of stuff. And so you have to create an account. You have to put in your address. You need to put in your um, your your name. You have to put in your telephone number. You have to put in the, the your credit card. So that's how they get you. So the, the, the receipt is a bit like a hook, right? Once they have your email address, they now are able to contact you. One thing that I know people do, um, well is that they have uh, there are tools in place that you can sort of spoof your email so you can give them an email address and it's kind of a spoof of your email and that gets forwarded onto your email you know so it's like a it's like a proxy almost but still that's a technical solution to this and You've got, to, you've got to appreciate that not everyone has a technical mind or has these kind of ideas of, of spoofing and proxying and all of this stuff to keep their online digital uh, pers- um, profile safe, right? Not, not everyone does this. A, s- a small amount of people will, but not everyone does this. So a lot of people will just go, yeah, just for convenience, email it to me. And if you've got your, if you're emailing your uh, receipt, if you've got your your receipt emailed, then that goes against the whole proof of purchase because I know that some people will go, oh, well, you know, I print my stuff off because it's proof of purchase. So when I get out of the shop, I can actually prove that I have purchased this and an email, you know, it's, it's something that I might have not have my phone right now. So I won't be able to prove that I purchased it. It's just something I wanted to mention that um, try and avoid it as much as possible. Try and avoid giving your personal details away as much as possible. It might seem convenient to you right now, but in the future, it it won't be. <laughs> it won't be. The last thing I want to talk about today is some really cool advice from uh, Dev Two. So there is an article here about Git commit patterns. So this is it, I find this quite a fascinating topic, Git. Um, It's a bit sad, I know, but there are many ways to do this. There are many ways to write git commit messages. And like with coding standards, I think there are standards to follow when writing commit messages. And throughout my contracting career, I've noticed that there are different companies, different organizations that have different ways of writing commit messages. Some prefer certain uh, standard, right? Some prefer having, say, the ticket number in front or even a date, or some sort of acronym that that means certain different things, different departments, or different tickets, or styles of things, and then uh, an explanation as to what the what what it was that happened, and then and then maybe an example or something like that. I, I've been in places where it gets quite in depth, and so you have to kind of a git commit message needs to be on several lines, um, which kind of avoids the the fact that bad commit messages go in because you have to actually think about it so like for example previously there was like a, a place where i worked at where you had to put in like a almost like a tr- treat it like an email so you had have have subject line subject line and then the body of the git, git commit message and you would do it over several lines and so you really had to think about it really had to think about your commit message. other places I worked at they don't they didn't really there wasn't there wasn't a standard so they cared about it but they 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 didn't care about it enough to enforce a standard and they certainly wouldn't prevent your your uh, git commit mess your git commit from actually being put into the pipeline if your commit message was spelt wrong for instance other places are a little bit more stringent they have to be a little bit more strict because actually these commit messages are used as history of change logs. And so there needs to be uh, strictness applied there. This article is interesting because it goes through a, a series of conventions that I actually quite agree with, to be honest. And it, it if I just move this mouse down here. So it it starts, there's three parts to it. There's a type, there's a scope, and there's a subject. So the type, which has the exclamation mark, for, for those who, who, are, who are watching this, has an exclamation mark. So it says, the rules are very simple as shown below. We have a type of commit, the context, which is the scope of commits, and the message, which is the subject of the commit. So the type of commit would be things like, a refactor would be things like a new feature, would be things like a bug fix. The scope would be, say, the scope of the code or the domain that you're working on. So, for example, if you were working on a particular service, like an order service, you would have that in the, the braces. So, for example, if I was to do a refactor of the order service, I would have refactor and then in brackets, Um, order service, and then I would have colon, and then I would have the subject. So keeping to that convention, you can quickly see if there was a bug fix, if there was a refactor, if there was a new feature. There are some examples here. So test, uh, feat for for features, uh, refactor, style, fix, chore, docs, build, um, CI, revert, and so forth. This also means that you have to have many commits, right, because you have to have a commit per one of these things. So your your actual commit cannot combine multiple things. So it can't combine, say, docs, it can't combine refactoring, it can't combine tests. They all have to be in separate commits. So here we're setting out a standard. We're saying that every commit needs to relate to one of these types right? We can't have multiple types mixed together, which I think is really, really good, right? I think multiple commits gives you the opportunity to actually have more of a detailed history rather than a single commit that has a huge sort of blog post about what it was that was changed with examples and links and all of that stuff. One thing that I really like um, is to to add the issue number this is not on this article but this is something that I've done before and it's just really really useful put in the issue number inside the git commit so if you're using github for instance you could do hash and then the the, the issue number and what github will do is it will how it will turn that into an automatic link so it will link that that um, that commit message back to the issue that it corresponds to, which is very, very useful. Something that I've learned recently actually is how to, <laughs> is something that I should have known for a while, is how to update the history by rebasing the history by changing the commit messages. So something I did uh, fairly recently is I wrote a couple of commits. I'd put in a couple of commits and then I realized that the ticket number was wrong in the, in the history. Now before it with simple fixes, I went through the whole sort of scorched earth policy, where I would just kill the the branch, create a new branch, and then do all the commits again manually. But I thought today, or when I did it, it wasn't today. I thought when I did it, I'm going to do it properly. I'm going to do a rebase. I'm going to go through all the commits. I'm going to cherry pick and then change from pick to reword, I think it is. And then... I'll put a link into the show notes about the tutorial that I I used. It was very, very useful. Actually, I think it was a Stack Overflow post I read. Anyway, I'll link to it. And it it kind of took me out of my comfort zone a little bit because it was playing around with Vim. (laughs) But it allowed me to alter the ticket numbers of the Git commit stuff Uh, Git commit messages in history. So I had to do, I think it was like five that I had to just fix because I put in the wrong number in the ticket uh, in in the commit message. Very, very useful. But this article, I think, I I think I would be able to get on board with this. If there was a, a place that I worked on and they didn't have any kind of style of how to actually write your commit messages, I think I would do this. I think this is pretty useful. So I'll go over it again. So we have type. That is a required a requirement type being uh, test feat, feature uh, refactor style fix chore docs build uh, perf, which indicates a change that improved the system performance. Oh, okay, uh, CI used for changes to CI configuration files and revert. So you would have the feature, and then sorry, you would have the type, and then in um, brackets, which is an optional one you would have the domain or the they're saying the uh, what they're saying the scope so here we got question mark scope so it's not optional so this would be the scope of the change so if i was to work on say an order service it would be order service so if i was to do a if i was to add a test to the order service i would have test and then in bracket order service and then colon space and then the subject you know an explanation of what it was that i did i made the change of and i think that works pretty well i think that works pretty well the, the, i guess with git commit messages you want to make them nice and easy to digest and read from both the reader's point of view but you also want them to be nice and easy to write as well you don't want to get you don't, you don't want to have any friction when writing uh, these Git commit messages. But I'll be interested to know what you lot think about this and how you do your Git commit messages. Let me know. Go to howtocowell.net forward slash contact and then put in, write me some uh, uh, an email or fill out that form and let me know how do you do your Git commit messages. I'll be very interested to hear. Thank you ever so much for listening or watching. Happy coding, everybody. And I'll see you again next week, next Monday. Cheers. Bye-bye.